Good evening, and welcome to this, the first of four lectures on Charles Darwin and his various ideas. The series is called Darwin's Descent, and the first one I've christened Breeding and Barnacles. And what I'm going to do mostly this evening is set the scene for what's to come. But I think it's worth asking before we begin, why Darwin? Why in the age where we're pulling down statues of dead white guys are we still talking about this one? Uh, is there something perhaps problematic about that in itself? I think I'm going to justify that in a couple of ways. The first one is just to mention that we have a big anniversary coming up. So uh, next year will be the uh, um, 150th anniversary of the publication of The Descent of Man, Darwin's big book about human evolution, but also his book about sex, about race, um, and about morality. So a number of issues that I'm going to be touching on during this lecture series. The other thing I would say about Darwin is that his ideas still matter because of the way that they've influenced the world that we live in. These lectures are not particularly interested in Darwin himself and what he thought and why he thought it, more about the interaction between him and his world, the world that shaped him, and then the world that he shaped, and the world that he continues to shape, which I think is why perhaps he is still worth thinking about. One of the things I'm going to try and do this evening is look at the funny side of Darwin on the slightly implausible premise that there is a funny side to him, apart from the fun that caricaturists had with him over the years. There are certain stories about Darwin that get told again and again. I have to admit, being a very serious Darwin nerd and having been to a great many conferences and meetings and so on over the years, I've become rather tired of these, but I'm going to retell them in the hope uh, that some of you will find them new, but also that they illuminate issues that are of uh, considerable, I hope, interest. So, let's start with the question of marriage, whether or not it's a good idea. Darwin, as I'm sure all of you know, spent five years aboard HMS Beagle, um, traveling all around the, uh, South America, uh, spending a long time doing geology, visiting most famously of all the Galapagos Islands, and so on. He came back from that with no very clear idea of what kind of career he was going to pursue, but clearly committed to a life in science. And he decided that perhaps it was time to think about settling down and to weigh up the question of whether or not to get married. He wrote these notes, which, like a great many Darwin documents, are preserved at the University of Cambridge Library, and I'm grateful to them for letting me have an image of this that we can use. Um, and being a good scientific man, he's made out a detailed list here uh, on the question of whether or not to get married. Uh, and uh, this is pretty hard to read, so I'm going to uh, highlight a couple of things uh, on his scribble. So he wrote a list for not marry on one side of the page. Freedom to go where one liked would be an advantage. Choice of society and underlined little of it. Of the feeling that Darwin probably wouldn't find the current restrictions on socialising too hard. The conversation of clever men at clubs was a freedom that he might lose if he married. The expense and anxiety of children, less money for books, etc. And if many children forced to gain one's bread, a, a dreadful prospect. And perhaps my wife won't like London, then the sentence is banishment and degradation into an indolent, idle fool. Not a very appealing prospect, but we have to take a balanced view here. Being a scientific man, he wrote a list of what was in favor of marriage as well. And marry, he listed home and someone to take care of house. Charms of music and female chit-chat these things good for one's health. A constant companion and friend in old age who will feel interested in one, object to be beloved and played with. 
Better than a dog, anyhow. As you probably know, he summed up in favour of marriage in the end. My God, it is intolerable to think of spending one's whole life like a new-to-be, working, working, and nothing after all. No, no, won't do. Imagine living all one's day solitarily in smoky, dirty London house. Only picture to yourself a nice, soft wife on a sofa with good fire and books and music, perhaps. Compare this vision with the dingy reality of Great Marlborough Street, where he was then living. Marry, marry, marry. QED. And the idea that Darwin had a wife because it was better than a dog, anyhow, of course, uh, is a story that's been told many times. Uh, I'm going to try and unpick this note a little bit and think a little bit about what it tells us, not just about Darwin as a person, but more importantly about the world that he and his soon-to-be wife, Emma, lived in. He proposed to his cousin, Emma Wedgwood, in November of 1838, and in his diary he wrote, it was the day of days because she had accepted him. This was the first of, not the first, but the latest of several cousin marriages between the Darwin and Wedgwood families, uh, and Darwin had more or less grown up with Emma and her sisters um, and her parents and so on. So a very close marriage in lots of senses. I think that the list um, and the, uh, the notes that he made bear out a number of interesting points. The first is that I think Darwin often sees analogies between the human world and the world of animals. So if we think about peacocks, a subject that he would write about in The Descent of Man, which I'll come to in a later lecture, um, the males display, the females choose. And in many parts of the animal kingdom, there is a fierce, often vicious contest between the males for the possession of the females. Um, and Darwin has these kinds of combats and choices in mind. One of the things that I think is very interesting and revealing about his list is that he seems to have accepted the idea that one of them would do the choosing and the other one would be the chosen. Uh, he doesn't seem to have paid any great attention to Emma's feelings or desires in coming to this decision. And so the ideal of Victorian courtship, uh, the natural relationships between men and women, is one of the things that's shaping uh, his ideas here, as you would expect, but also, as we will see, they shape his ideas about the natural world, about animals uh, and the way that they behave. And then those ideas about animals get transferred back onto the human world in lots of different ways. One of the things that the notes reveal, I think, is the idea that is sometimes called separate spheres. This is the idea that's quite common in Victorian Britain, that men and women have natural roles. These are ultimately biological uh, and can't be changed. And because of the biology, the social roles of men and women are equally uh, foreordained by the natural order. So this is a famous painting by George Elgar Hicks called The Sinews of Old England. And it illustrates the idea of separate spheres rather nicely. So the man of the house is portrayed as muscular and fit, He's got a pickaxe over his shoulder. He's about to go out of the house into the world of work. Uh, and he will compete against other men to bring home uh, his daily bread uh, for his wife and child, who will stay there. And behind him is the domestic sphere. You can just about make out the kitchen, the pots and pans. That's the wife's domain. And she's portrayed uh, softer, rounder, gentler. There's a contrast uh, visually between them. Uh, and that contrast echoes the supposedly natural contrast in their roles. So she will stay at home with their child, who is her concern. Interestingly, you may not be aware of this, but this child is a boy. We can tell that because he's holding a shovel and he's going to grow up to follow in his father's footsteps and be a labourer. But all Victorian children wore dresses in the first few years of their life. 
Um, and uh, there was a symbolic moment when boys left the care of women. They left the nursery or the home if they were from poor families, uh, and they went off to the care of men, to school typically. Uh, and at that point, they would be breached. They would be given their first pair of trousers uh, and join the world of men. So the child belongs to the woman, to the house, for this part of their life. And that notion of a separation, a natural separation, between the world of men and the world of women, I think is something that comes out quite clearly in Darwin's notes. He wants a wife as someone to take care of his home, something which Emma did for him uh, very energetically and successfully, uh, to raise the children. By Victorian standards, Darwin spent quite a lot of time with his children, playing with them, and obviously enjoyed them a great deal. Nevertheless, he was the one who worked uh, even though Emma was an heiress and brought plenty of money to the family, as did Darwin himself. So uh, there was an equality in some ways, but it wasn't reflected in the way that Darwin thought about the way they would live. So they married in 1839, and uh, as I said, Emma brought a dowry with her. Darwin inherited money from his father, so that awful necessity of having to earn his bread never actually came to pass. Um, they lived together on Gower Street in central London, where University College London uh, now has lecture theatres. There's a blue plaque outside, and many years ago when I was teaching at UCL, I had the honour of lecturing in Darwin's house, or in the lecture theatre which stood where Darwin's house once stood, um, which you know, was quite a thrill for me. The family grows, and Darwin's health remained uncertain for years after the Beagle voyage for reasons that were never really clear. And so they moved uh, to Down House here uh, in the village of Down in Kent, sort of not far from Bromley. Um, and uh, they, uh, they settle there. Darwin, in fact, virtually never leaves Down. He never leaves England, that's for certain, after this. Um, and he once compared himself to being like a barnacle on a rock that had stuck to itself down, never moved again. Um, and it was at Down that he wrote his books and where he did his experiments uh, and produced the work, which, of course, eventually is going to make him famous. So did he become an indolent idol fool? Obviously not. This is Darwin's study um, as it looked uh, some years after his, um, after his death when it was recreated. Um, he worked flat out, and I think it's interesting to think about some of the reasons why he didn't become that indolent idol fool. The first is that he wasn't banished. He wasn't exiled from the world around him. And a key reason for that is the trains. So the railway network is expanding at an enormous pace, and Darwin takes some of the money he's inherited from his father and some of the money that Emma's brought to the marriage and invests that in railway shares and makes quite a nice sum from doing so. So he's right at the heart, in every sense, of the world of industrialization, uh, the world of steam. Um, and I love this picture, which uh, captures a lot of things about this. So the trains are obviously at the heart of this. You can see a well-known railway bookstall, which got its start in Victorian times. It's still very much going on British high streets. Lots of people coming and going. The trains symbolize not merely physical mobility, being able to get from one place to another, but increasingly social mobility. People can move to a new town, start a new career, a new life, uh, and reinvent themselves as a different kind of person in those new circumstances. And they can take holidays, they can go to the seaside, and the whole boom in uh, holidays and vacations comes with the growth of the railway network in Victorian Britain. But this particular picture is actually from a history of advertising. And I think it's the adverts, the posters on the wall that visually dominate this, uh, and which are a very powerful reminder of something quite important about Darwin's world, which is that competition is to people like Darwin, self-evidently the motor of progress. 
all these different companies competing for the buyer's attention with their supposedly improved and better products provide a model for a new kind of economy, the world's first industrialized capitalist economy. There hadn't been anything quite like this before. And that intense competition, the companies that fail to produce better goods go bust, is one of the things that uh, is driving Victorian Britain, driving Darwin's personal fame and fortune. But it's also very important um, for him, it provides him with a metaphor for thinking about how nature works. Steam, of course, is essential to all kinds of aspects of Victorian life. This is the SS Great Britain setting sail, and gradually during the century, uh, transportation and communication between different countries was going to get faster and faster. The time that it took a little wooden sailing ship like the Beagle to get all the way to Australia was cut dramatically over and over again during the century as first clipper ships and then steamships carried the um, plowed on those routes faster and faster. And they brought letters with them. They brought communications, specimens, news from the rest of the world. Steam is also really important to printing and to the, the industrialization of communications in the 19th century. Um, I joke with my students that if I ask them a question and they're not sure what the answer is, the safe guess is always steam-powered printing and cheap machine-made paper. Because those two things together absolutely revolutionize um, communications, education, and uh, the spread of ideas in the 19th century. So a printing press like this, being powered by steam, could produce hundreds more sheets in an hour than a hand-powered press. The hand-powered press hadn't really changed in hundreds of years before this period. And then the paper that is printed on, instead of being handmade from rags, which made it very expensive, um, was made from wood pulp and made on great long continuous cylinders by a Foudrenier machine. So you'd get huge rolls of cheap newsprint. And those things together with a number of other technological innovations that come about in printing make the cost of print much, much lower than it's ever been before. And of course, all kinds of people take advantage of cheap print to have uh, literacy campaigns. So evangelical Christians will print cheap Bibles and cheap tracts and hold Bible reading classes and teach people to read. Um, and various other kinds of people will use the printing press to promote their ideas, ideas about science and technology. So the famous Society for the Diffusion of Useful Knowledge, which was actually known in Victorian times as the Steam Reading Society, is one of many groups that takes advantage of the new technology to spread ideas. And the other kind of corner of this that's worth thinking about is the telegraph. This is quite a famous cartoon from Punch called The Rhodes Colossus, which depicts Cecil Rhodes, the adventure explorer, arch imperialist, striding the, bestriding the African continent, holding the Cape Town to Cairo telegraph line in his hands to celebrate its completion. And the telegraph, of course, made communication much faster. It helped the trains to run on time and not to bump into each other. It allowed news to be transmitted in a flash from all parts of the world to each other. But of course, as this picture of Rhodes reminds us, it's also very importantly a tool of imperialism. It helps the British Empire to run efficiently. And there were many people in Britain who argued quite seriously that unlike previous great empires, unlike the Roman Empire, for example, the British Empire would last forever because of the telegraph, because the, the periphery wouldn't uh, uh, get separated from the center, the center would hold, and it would keep the periphery in check because it could communicate. And the telegraph is used, for example, to um, 
give orders to the troops during what we know in Britain as the Indian Mutiny, sometimes referred to by Indian historians as the First War of Independence. But the ease with which London could keep in touch with what was happening and send fresh orders made it a very different prop uh, proposition to the way that, say, the Roman Empire would have dealt with a rebellion as they would have seen it in one of their provinces. So all of these steam-powered technologies are crucial to the world that Darwin lives in. And it's worth remembering that Imperialism is at the heart of everything Darwin does. His whole career is founded on it. The Beagle is a British naval surveying vessel. I mean, Darwin's dad was rich, but he wasn't rich enough to buy him his own boat. If the British Navy hadn't been doing this kind of surveying, and if the captain of the Beagle hadn't wanted a gentlemanly companion to keep him company and, frankly, to stop him going crazy, um, Darwin would never have sailed. And what the Beagle is doing is making charts like this one, charts of the harbors and the rivers and the coastlines of South America. The Spanish and Portuguese empires in South America are collapsing in the early 19th century. All these newly independent countries present opportunities for trade, and the British are very keen to try and take advantage of them. So the Beagle is there to help make South America safe for British commerce, for its merchant vessels, but also for the naval vessels that are going to protect them. Uh, and so that is a crucial underpinning to everything Darwin does. So the banishment that he worried about that might follow from moving to the countryside never happened. And a key reason that it never happened was one of the things that comes out of all these technologies, which is the massively improved postal service. So there are letters flowing in from all over Britain to Darwin, but actually all over the world. Uh, and as he becomes increasingly well-known after he publishes the Journal of Researches, the book we now call The Voyage of the Beagle, he becomes quite a celebrity, quite a well-known writer. Uh, and he's well enough known that he can write to people all over the empire, asking advice, asking for information, asking for specimens, and so on. So the letters provide a lifeline to the rest of the world, uh, and they make sure that he doesn't uh, suffer that fate of banishment and idleness that he claimed he was worrying about. As Darwin got older, he needed to take some gentle exercise and found himself a, a soft-stepping horse. This is Tommy, um, who uh, he could ride without any fear of being thrown and so on. And in his top hat, he thought he looked like a village postman. Um, and he's written on the back of this uh, photograph, hurrah, no letters today. So the sheer volume of correspondence that he was dealing with uh, became quite a burden to him. But as I say, it was also a vital research tool that allowed him to carry on with the work that he was doing. Now, Darwin's there are a lot of Darwin's letters, and they're in the process of being published by the Darwin Correspondence Project at the University of Cambridge. These are some of the dozens and dozens of actual print volumes. But of course, like all great scholarly endeavors these days, they're also online. That's the website address, uh, a great website. All the quotes from Darwin's letters that I'm going to give you have come from here. Um, and uh, I have a number of friends and colleagues who work there who've been incredibly helpful to me in doing this and with many, many other projects. So my thanks to them. But do go and have a look at this, because as well as the letters themselves, there is a vast amount of supporting um, evidence of every kind, great editorial footnotes and so on, but also stuff about Darwin and religion, the science of his day, who his correspondents were. It's a, it's a fascinating portal into his world. Uh, and you actually, even if you had no interest in Darwin himself, there's a ton of material there that is really worth reading. So take a look when you have a chance. 
One of the things Darwin is doing, of course, on the Beagle and thinking about when he gets home uh, was he was collecting. So he's got various specimens that he's collected during his travels. He brings them back to Britain. Most of them he farms out to experts in various fields. He gives them his finches, for example, gold to a man called John Gould, who's the leading ornithologist at the time. And it's Gould, in fact, who tells Darwin that they are all finches. We think of them now uh, famously as Darwin's finches, but Darwin didn't actually realize their significance straight away at all. Um, these are some of the original beagle specimens which Darwin brought back. These particular ones are at the University of Cambridge Zoology Museum. Again, my thanks to them for permission to show them to you. Um, and uh, one of the things that these specialists were doing was classifying his work. This is a key underlying uh, part of natural history in the 19th century. Things have to have names before you can begin to think about wider questions like how did they get where we found them and why are they there, things like that. Uh, so that basic labor is something that has to be done, and that's one of the things specialists are doing, classifying, describing, publishing the technical details. But Darwin has an odd leftover in his collections, a barnacle who he gives the nickname Mr. Arthur Bellanus, uh, a very odd little creature, um, and he can't find a barnacle specialist to take these on. So he decides he's going to fool around just for fun for a few months and publish a description of this barnacle. And that takes me on to the, the next chapter in today's lecture, Darwin's Barnacles. <clears throat> now, there's a, another story about Darwin, which is often told that when one of his children was visiting a neighbor's house, he looked around and said, but where does your daddy do his barnacles? On the assumption that all the fathers in the country must share his own rather weird obsession with barnacles. And that, again, is another reminder of Darwin's world of work being in the home, but kind of separate from it. He had his own space to study where the children weren't allowed to be. So it's another reminder of separate spheres, in a way, um, that he has to be kept, uh, the barnacles have to be kept away from the children. And Darwin is actually going to labor away for nearly eight years and eventually produce four substantial books about barnacles, which, again, seems kind of weird and quite strange. Um, and he was satirized at the time for the, t for the work that he put into this. And that work that he does, and the reason he does it, is another reminder of the kind of world that he's coming up in and the world that's shaping him. It's a world without scientists. So the word scientist itself hasn't actually been, uh, hasn't actually been coined. Um, it's, it, it's coined in the 1830s in Britain, it doesn't catch on. It doesn't catch on until the 20th century. Um, and one of the reasons it doesn't is there isn't a clearly defined body of people who want to use that word. There are people who call themselves biologists, botanists, zoologists, anthropologists, geologists, and so on, but they don't see themselves as sharing an identity. And so one of the things that has to happen in that world is you've got to prove that you're qualified to be part of it. You've got to actually uh, make a name for yourself somehow when there aren't formal qualifications. You can't just go to university and do a science degree. They don't exist in British universities at the time Darwin is a student. So one of the ways that you prove you're a scientist is to buy fancy equipment. This is the actual microscope that Darwin used to do his barnacle dissections, uh, um, the most expensive and fancy microscope uh, available at the time, um, thanks to the Whipple Museum of the History of Science for that one. Um, but one of the reasons that the question of whether you're qualified as a man of science would have bothered Darwin was this book, which came out in 1844, just a few years after he gets back from the Beagle, he's married, he's working away on his ideas about species. They're already starting to take shape, but he's told almost nobody about them at this stage. And The Vestiges was actually a sensational bestseller. 
it actually outsold the origin of species until almost the end of the 19th century. Um, and if you look here at the title page, you can see perhaps one reason for that. There's no author's name on the title page. The book was anonymous. And that, of course, led to intense speculation about who the mysterious Mr. Vestiges might be. And all kinds of people were mentioned as possibilities. Um, so the mystery helped the controversy. And of course, the reason that the author kept his name a secret was that the ideas in the book were controversial ones. They were perceived by many people as being anti-religious, uh, as quite shocking and immoral. We now know that the author was Robert Chambers, the uh, middle-class Edinburgh publisher, famous particularly if you're a Scrabble player like me for Chambers Dictionary, which used to be um, the, real, the only and real Scrabble dictionary. But Chambers didn't want his name on the book precisely because of the controversial nature of the reviews. But it's as the reviewers, uh, the, the views in the book, as the reviewers get to work on it, even though they're not sure who Mr. Vestiges is, it's apparent to most of the scientific experts who review the book that whoever he might be, he's not one of them. He clearly hasn't done first-hand research of his own. He's relying on second-hand knowledge, other people's work, which he's repackaged into this well-written, sensational bestseller. So there's a certain professional jealousy, I think. Um, but Mr. Vestiges is pilloried for not knowing what he talks about. And if we, the, re, the reason that matters becomes clear when we look at some of Darwin's letters and some of the people that he wrote with. So I showed you these before, the hideous handwriting on the left, which is very hard work, to, uh, believe me, I've read an awful lot of this particular man's uh, work, is the work of this man uh, hovering over Darwin's mantelpiece in the study at Down. If you go and visit Down House, which I strongly recommend you do, it's all been restored the way it is and his portrait is still there. So Joseph Dalton Hooker is one of Darwin's closest friends. Um, he would later become the director of Kew Gardens uh, and a great uh, source of support and help to Darwin in many ways. Um, I have to be careful not to get going on Hooker because I've written a book about him and I know far more about Hooker than most people want to hear, so I have to rein, rein myself in a bit. But Hooker is an incredibly important correspondent to Darwin. There are, in fact, more letters to Darwin in the Hooker correspondence than to anyone else, and there are more letters to Hooker in the Darwin correspondence than there are to anyone else, more than 1,300 of them in total, and I think I've read all of them at some point. Um, and I want to just discuss a couple of them this evening because they give us some insight into why Darwin spends all these years messing around with barnacles. So this is Hooker as he looked at the time that he wrote the letter, more or less, before his facial hair had got completely out of control, as it did in later years. And in these letters in 1845, so this is the year after the vestiges, Darwin is still working away in secret, but Hooker already knows about the, th the species idea, the idea of natural selection. And they're discussing another rather speculative treatise on uh, species by a man called Frédéric Gervard, a French naturalist. And Hooker is rather con contemptuous of this book. Gerard was neither a specific naturalist, nor a collector, nor a traveler, and therefore merely a distorter of facts. He didn't have that first-hand empirical knowledge that made him somebody worth listening to. To write on species, in Hooker's view, a man must have handled hundreds of species with a view to distinguishing them, and that over a great part or brought from a great many parts of the globe. So you need a global perspective, the kind of thing that an empire of botanic gardens is going to allow Hooker to assemble, um, and you need to have done the descriptions yourself. You need to have published and described and really know what species are before you venture off into speculation. And Darwin wrote back, 
Oh, how painfully to me true is your remark that no one has hardly a right to examine the question of species who has not minutely described many. And Hooker tries to reassure him that he, of course, he didn't mean him. You, you know what you're talking about, Charles. Don't worry about it. But one of the reasons Darwin spends eight years on barnacles is to prove that he really is an expert. And it's a strategy that tri uh, works triumphantly. In 1853, um, he's actually given the, gold, the Royal Medal of the Royal Society of London uh, in recognition of his barnacle work. So he is really celebrated uh, as a technical naturalist, somebody who has really earned his right to venture into more difficult terrain. So when The Origin of Species does finally come out, lots of people are critical of it for all kinds of reasons. Some are very hostile. But very little of that hostility is directed at Darwin himself. In sharp contrast to the way Mr. Vestiges is treated, people, generally speaking, treat Darwin with courtesy and respect. Because of the barnacles, particularly, he's somebody who can't be ignored. So all of those strands come together and help us understand what the barnacle work was really about. Now, Darwin, of course, has a lifelong interest in breeding and reproduction in animal and plant breeding. Um, he grows up in the country. He grows up among the, the English gentry, people who are endlessly discussing the finer points of their dogs and their horses and their wives. Um, and he takes information from breeders and uses it crucially as the raw material for his books. So he keeps his own pigeons. And my students, when they finally are forced to read The Origin of Species, are rather surprised to find that a great deal of the book is, in fact, about pigeons. And he uses domesticated varieties to test his ideas, um, including the pigeons. He joins various pigeon fancying clubs. This is a very popular hobby in Victorian Britain. There are working class clubs that meet in, in pubs. And Darwin is quite funny in the letters about some of the people he met there um, and some of the awful shakings of the head there were when they'd heard that a particular person had crossed his, 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 his um, one kind of pigeon with another in violation of all good practice. This is one of the more upmarket uh, pigeon clubs, the Philoparistron, the Pigeon Lovers Club, which Darwin also belonged to. Um, and uh, these are, again, another source of information for Darwin, the kinds of people who are going to give him more and more facts to grind away into his theories. But, of course, it's also worth reminding that all these people would eventually become an audience for Darwin as well. Uh, so there's many sides to this relationship. And one of the things that Darwin is doing when he's thinking about um, pigeons is he's looking at artificial selection, that is to say the breeding of animals and plants, as a model for natural selection. So he takes examples like this. These are Victorian fancy pigeon breeds. So there's a pouter with a great big chest there, fantails at the bottom. And Darwin said, just imagine that these were wild birds. Just imagine I collected these in South America, the Galapagos or somewhere. I brought them back to London. I'd given them to an ornithologist and said, classify them. There's no doubt, he said, that any ornithologist would regard these as different species. Several of them he might even assign to different genera. And yet we know for a fact that all of these varieties have been created by people in the course of recorded history, starting with the ordinary common or garden rock pigeons, the um, ordinary Columba livia that you see in the streets of London and city parks everywhere. And if you actually stop and look at those pigeons, you'll see they vary a great deal in their size, in their color, in their shape, the way that they walk, the way that they move. And what the pigeon breeders have done is pick out the ones they like, cross them, and select. 
They choose those that have the traits they're looking for. The rest of them, I'm afraid, end up in the pigeon pie. Um, and then from each generation, again, they select and select and select. They take the ones that best fit their bill. And that is the kind of model that Darwin has in mind for the way that nature works. The competition between species is going to eliminate those that don't compete effectively. But of course, that leaves us with an interesting question, or at least Darwin with many interesting questions, one of which is, why did sex evolve at all? And this is something that uh, puzzles Darwin a great deal over many years of his life. So if we think about amoeba, for example, like these ones, uh, they reproduce asexually. Um, they simply split into two, and every amoeba is just a fragment of the original primordial amoeba. They seem to have been getting along for millions of years perfectly well without sex. So why did nature ever evolve sex at all is one of the questions that Darwin is interested in. Why is it possible to do that work of breeding and varying and selecting in the first place? What benefit does it have? Um, and if you want to know why, uh, what's wrong with asexual reproduction, the kind of reproduction that amoeba go in for, you could ask an elm tree. So this is a British elm, and it's damaged there by Dutch elm disease. And Dutch elm disease uh, swept through Britain and many other parts of Europe during the 20th century. In the 1970s, um, when I was a lad, 25 million British elm trees died in very short space of time. And the British countryside has never really recovered from that. It doesn't look the same as it did uh, in the generation before that. Um, and the reason for that is that elm trees naturally reproduce by suckering. So they send out a special kind of root, and that root grows into another elm tree. Most of their reproduction is asexual. Um, and in 2004, geneticists proved what had long been suspected, which is basically that all Britain's elms were clones of a single tree. They actually managed to trace the DNA to a single specimen that had been imported to Britain and had then been the parent of all the others. And the result, of course, was a chronic lack of genetic diversity uh, within the elm population, which meant that there was no variation, for example, in their resistance to disease. This is something that is, of course, uh, very much in everybody's minds at the moment um, with COVID-19. Why do some populations seem more affected than others? There are a great many issues around that that, of course, we don't understand yet. But one of them seems to be natural genetic variability in disease resistance. And again, some populations will be more subject um, to diseases. Those that don't have the resistance will be wiped out. Those that do have it will pass on their resistance. That's one of the many mechanisms of evolution that Darwin sees as having happened in the past. But for the poor old elm trees, the lack of variability meant that they didn't have any variability in their resistance, uh, and they were absolutely decimated. So it would seem, on the face of it, that sex evolves for the good of the species. Uh, sex increases variability. Um, and it's very obvious that all amoeba are alike and sexually reproduction organisms like beetles, another one of Darwin's passions, these are some more of his specimens here, um, they vary much more. Natural selection has much more variability to work on, much more raw material, and that allows species to evolve more rapidly and get themselves out of the cul-de-sac of coping with an epidemic disease, for example. The problem is, of course, as Darwin recognised very clearly, and I hope is obvious to you, that that's nonsense. Nothing can evolve for the good of the species. Natural selection has no foresight. It cannot think about the needs of organisms that haven't been born yet and what the species might need down the, down the line. There has to be an immediate payoff to the individual organism that possesses a particular variation. 
and that is needed to make the explanation. So this is another reason why barnacles are so interesting to Darwin. What struck him about them was that a lot of barnacle species are hermaphroditic, that is to say they have male and female reproductive organs, as most flowers do. Um, but some of them are what he called bisexual. They have two separate species. And this intrigued him because he assumed that every living thing must have evolved from common ancestor, and those common ancestors must have been very, very simple. In the case of animals, something like amoeba that just split by fission. And to get to a position where you've got two separate sexes, which need each other, clearly you couldn't have had one evolved before the other. They must have evolved side by side. They must, he thinks, have gone through a hermaphroditic stage and then eventually to separate sexes. And he writes to uh, Hooker in another one of these letters, I have lately got a bisexual cirripede, that's the technical name for a barnacle, the male being microscopically small and parasitic within the sac of the female. I tell you this to boast of my species theory, for the nearest and closest ally genus to it is, as usual, hermaphrodite. But I had observed some minute parasites adhering to it, and these parasites I can now show are supplemental males, the male organs in the hermaphrodite being unusually small, though perfect, and containing sperm. So the details of this are probably obscure, but the basic point is that Dar this is Mr. Arthur Bellanus we're talking about here. This is this strange species, which, as Darwin puts in another letter, the female carries her husbands around in her pockets. The males have reduced a little more than packets of sperm entirely dependent. And so he can imagine in steps like that the various stages by which sex, separate sexes could possibly have evolved. And as he says to Hooker, I should never have made this out had not my species theory convinced me that an hermaphrodite species must pass into a bisexual species by insensibly small stages. And this is a key part of Darwin's argument in everything, that um, we can't observe a great deal about the past. We have fossils, but we have very few, and things like the reproductive organs of organisms never fossilize. So we have to intuit the steps that must have happened by looking at examples from the living world, from the animals and plants we can see around us, uh, and assembling those into imaginary but plausible steps of links that would allow us to see how you might have got from A to B. And Darwin is very frank about there's lots of ifs and buts and maybes and there are all kinds of objections to this, but ultimately he says, well, can you think of a better theory? Uh, and people have been trying to think of a better theory ever since, and science has generally speaking failed to think of a better theory. But the point that I think is really important here is that the species theory led him to investigate this problem and to make sense of the observations. And that's what he's crowing about in the letter to Hooker. He goes on uh, that Hooker might perhaps wish my barnacles and species theory al diablo altogether. I don't care what you say, my species theory is all gospel. Um, and it's really one of the many things that's interesting about reading these letters over the decades before Darwin publishes is that Hooker is a great foil for Darwin. He's endlessly offering skeptical comments, counterexamples, potential problems, uh, and he sort of will send Darwin a plant and say, I don't think you're going to be able to do anything with this one, with your theory, and Darwin will write back and say, well, I think perhaps I may, and then he offers some explanations and so on, and they argue back and forth. And you can see not only the theory taking, play, uh, taking shape, but you can see Darwin anticipating objections and learning how to anticipate them. And one of the things that's very striking about the origin as a book is that he constantly anticipates the objections that he thinks readers are going to formulate and does his best to answer them as he goes along. So the letters give us all those kinds of insights too. 
The barnacles, incidentally, are also a lovely example of that point I was making about the world of competition, the world of Victorian capitalism. Uh, in one of his uh, technical descriptions of the um, larval of one of the barnacles, he writes in glowing terms about how beautifully made it was and how well it worked and, and what fine legs and eyes it had. And one of his children said it sounded as if he was writing an advertisement. Uh, and I think that the language of Victorian commerce seeps into Darwin's writing in a very literal sense. One of the ways to think about natural selection the way Darwin imagined it is that nature was a perfect free market. Organisms were like products in a marketplace. They competed with each other. The best ones succeeded and dominated the market. Um, the lousy ones went bust and disappeared from the market and so on. So the transference works very vividly in that case. And the other thing about the, the barnacles and the way that Darwin writes about them is a reminder of something that he wrote in his Recollections of the Development of My Mind and Character, which is sometimes called his autobiography. He mentions reading the work of Thomas Malthus, the political economist, in the 1830s, 1838, just after he got back from the Beagle. And he wrote that he had at last got a theory by which to work. That the, the glimmer of natural selection, that animals and plants produced far more offspring than could possibly live to maturity and reproduce, and that that would lead to intense overcrowding and competition for food, for resources, for mates, for names, uh, and just for space and for light. Even plants struggle against each other. A plant, as Darwin says, struggles in the desert. It struggles against the drought. So he doesn't mean struggle just in the literal sense of combat, but all the kinds of challenges that an organism faces. Um, and Malthus gave him the clue of seeing where the pressure that equated to the human breeder, in the analogy with that, and artificial selection came from. Nature the competition of nature, the struggle for existence, as he, calls it, as he called it, would mean that the best adapted organisms would survive and would pass on those adaptations. And these are the six editions of The Origin that Darwin published in his lifetime and are a reminder that this is very much a theory by which to work, not the idle fool that he worried he was going to be. The theory constantly prompted him to do new kinds of work. Um, I think it helped to persuade Darwin that he was on the right track because it allowed him to make sense of observations that had been puzzling him, but it also, I think, became very important in persuading others that he knew what he was talking about. So it served these multiple different purposes. Um, and a lot of his later books, which I'll be coming to in another lecture, are demonstrations of natural selection in action. That once you understand this theory, Darwin says, nat natural history just becomes so much more interesting. Because instead of simply describing and naming and cataloging things, we're now explaining them. We're looking at underlying fact forces that ex allow us to say how and why things came about as they did. So these are some of his botanical books. Darwin is more a botanist than any other kind of scientist, I would argue. And I'll come back to that topic in my final lecture. So let me finish by wrapping this together and by drawing the barnacles and the question of breeding and sex together and thinking a bit about Darwin's family uh, and showing how some of these links work. This is Emma in the middle and uh, several of their grown-up children um, in the house at Down. When he was contemplating marriage, we go back to that list where I started, Darwin read this book, which had just been published, Intermarriage, by Alexander Walker. Um, and uh, the subtitle of this is quite striking. How and why beauty, health, and intellect result from certain marriages and deformity, disease, and insanity from others. Um, so a book that was likely to catch many a prospective parent's eye. 
but I think Darwin would have been particularly interested by this claim that Walker made. The functions and capacities which each parent in every pair bestows on children are in conformity with certain natural laws. And by an account of the corresponding effects in the breeding of animals, he's going to show what those laws are. And what I was just saying about natural history being transformed from mere describing cataloging into a question of explanations is very much bound up in this notion of natural law, that we can explain these things in the same way that Newton explained the movements of planets and apples, supposedly, by reference to the theory of gravity. That is the model of good science for most Victorians. And natural history doesn't really look anything like that before evolution. So the notion that laws would reveal relationships between human and animal mating would have been interesting, but of course, how could you tell whether a, you had a good marriage or not is one of the things Walker is promising here. Um, and as I mentioned, Darwin is worried about, uh, he's married his cousin, and this is something that worries him. There is a certain, this is perfectly legal, but there is a certain worry that close uh, inbreeding is harmful to the children. And so just after he re reads Walker's book, just after he gets married, Darwin starts experimenting with flowers. This is one of the places his botanical obsession begins. This is his greenhouse uh, at Down House, restored exactly to the way it was in his day. Again, as I said, well worth a visit. But Darwin actually spends a lot of time seeing whether inbred flowers are in fact uh, unhealthy relative to those that are cross-fertilized. And he discovers that they are, that cross-fertilized plants produce more seed and the seed tends to be more vigorous and produce more vigorous seedlings than those of inbred flowers. And that explains why the fact that although flowers have, most flowers have male and female parts, why in fact they gradually evolve mechanisms that favor cross-fertilization of various kinds, something that Darwin writes a lot about and which I'll come back to in another lecture. But if any random variation makes the chance of self-fertilization a bit lower, and the chance of cross-fertilization a bit higher, it's going to produce more seeds and more vigorous seeds of plants that carry that variation, which will increase the chances of cross-fertilization in later generations. And something similar would have happened in the ancestors of barnacles and every other kind of organism, little variations that would gradually make cross-fertilization more common uh, because it had advantages, as Darwin demonstrated in his own garden. Uh, Charles and Emma's marriage in many ways was a very happy one, but it had some very, unfortunately, sad aspects to it as well. Um, in 1842, their third child, Mary, died. She was just a few weeks old. In 1851, Annie, in many ways Darwin's favorite, died. Um, she was 10. Um, my daughter's always reminding me that parents, like teachers, are not allowed to have favorites, but I think this one hit him and Emma very hard, particularly because she was kind of out of infancy and they probably thought they were safe. <clears throat> Victorian parents sadly had to expect a high level of infant mortality, but Annie was well past that stage. Um, and their last child, Charles Waring, this as far as I know is the only picture of him with Emma, um, he lived for less than two years. Um, and so the Darwins, who are wealthy, highly educated people with the absolute best medical care that money could buy, uh, nevertheless lost three children um, in childhood. Um, and Darwin worried that his children seemed rather sickly, 
Uh, and so there's this very pressing anxiety about whether the decision to marry his cousin was actually a wise one. And he petitions unsuccessfully to have a question on cousin marriage added to the British National Census in order to gather hard scientific evidence to see whether this is really true. Was it just a coincidence? Or is it something that the law should actually consider banning? And as you may know, many states in America, cousin marriage is actually illegal under state marriage laws. So uh, many people took that idea and ran with it, and it's become a permanent part of the legislation. It's one small example of the way Darwin's thinking percolates through a great many other channels and has other kinds of influences. With that in mind, it's worth thinking about a passage from The Origin. Darwin wrote, when we reflect on this struggle, we may console ourselves with the full belief that the war of nature is not incessant, that no fear is felt, that death is generally prompt, and that the vigorous, the healthy, and the happy survive and multiply. And I maybe read too much into this, but I find these words quite poignant, because I think for Victorian readers, the word console would automatically have evoked the idea of the consolations of religion, the comfort that is traditionally provided uh, by the priest when you lose somebody, such as a child. And for Emma, those consolations remain very real and very important to her throughout her life. But Charles lost his faith in conventional Christianity very early on. And in some ways, he's offering an alternative consolation here. It's not anything like, of course, conventional Christianity. Um, and this is something I'll come back to in the next lecture and explore a bit more. This is a kind of statistical comfort. Death is generally prompt. Um, and it's worth thinking about the cruelty of nature in relation to the cruelty of the free market as well. That, of course, you know, some people get worked to death and some businesses go bust and some countries get conquered. And Darwin is a little blasé about all those things. On the whole, things work out for the best. Things improve. Uh, butter knives get cheaper, railway shares go up, and the British Empire provides me with an endless store of barnacles. So he can see the positive side in that struggle. And I think there's a similar kind of thinking here. But I wonder if it had a more personal element as well as that other one. So the Garden of Down House, the place where he does so much of his research, where he plays with his children, where he gets them to help him with his experiments, uh, I think was both the place where he thought very long and hard about breeding and its consequences and its meaning in a scientific sense, um, but perhaps it provided a welcome relief from some of the more painful consequences of the science that he was doing and the things that it forced him to think about. Thank you very much for listening. Well, Professor Andrusby, thank you very much for a very interesting lecture. Um, we do have a few questions from the online audience. I believe you've answered a couple of them. There were questions about um, cousin marriage that came through early that I think have been addressed. Um, there was a question, though. Um, was Darwin also interested in parthenogenesis, whereby females reproduce without males, for example, in sharks? Um. It is an issue that he does write about very occasionally, but not that much, and because I think that, as I said, one of the keys to Darwin's theory is variability, that offspring resemble their parents, but never precisely. And that variability is precisely what allows selection to work. It's what allows breeders to change pigeons, and it's what allows natural selection to produce new species. And any asexually reproducing species is going to be less variable, and therefore slightly less interesting to Darwin. So he touches on it now and again, but I can't remember any place where he goes into it in great detail. Um, there's also some, obviously, some interest in barnacles themselves. Um, 
The barnacle has a tendency to migrate in a few observed conditions. And um, the question from the audience member is, did Darwin have a particular interest in that kind of migration, or was he more focused on hmm. the actual structure of the an animals themselves? He's very interested in geographical distribution generally, but I can't recall. I mean, Darwin wrote a great deal, um, and the old brain is not as retentive as it used to be. I can't recall him writing about barnacle migrations. Um, it is very much the structure and the anatomy of them that fascinates the, uh, him more than anything. But he does have a general interest in why particular species are found in particular parts of the world and not elsewhere. And the two things that particularly fascinate him are why... Uh, in some places, you seem to get two different species doing the same job, as it were, in the economy of nature, fitting the same, what we would now call an ecological niche. And in other places, you get very similar, closely related species doing quite different jobs. Um, and those are the things that I remember him writing about most. The Galapagos finches are a famous example of that, where lots of finches have all been adapted to different niches that would, in, uh, on the mainland of South America or in Europe, be occupied by many different species, many different genera, the Galapagos, Galapagos only had finches to work with, and so finches had to be pressed into service to do the work of crossbills or mockingbirds or other kinds of birds in other countries. There was also a question about the word barnacle itself and its origin. Any idea? Did he, did um, he... I'm afraid not. The person to ask is um, Shelley Innes, one of my friends at the Darwin Correspondence Project in Cambridge, who has forgotten more about barnacles than I will ever know, and I'm sure would be very happy to answer that question. She once turned up at a meeting I was at clutching a copy of a magazine called Crustacean Issues, which is all about barnacles. And the joke that even crustaceans have issues has been part of the Darwin Project ever since. But she is the barnacle woman, and what, a lot of what I know I've gleaned from her, so I would try Shelley for that one. Okay. And one last one. Um, one of our readers, uh, one of our listeners is interested that Malthus influenced Darwin's thought. And they were just wondering if you could speak a bit more about that. Yeah. In the, um, in the recollections, Darwin actually talks about reading Malthus for amusement, which always makes me feel incredibly grateful for television, frankly, the idea that I had to read Malthus for amusement. Um, but of course, Malthus is very topical in the 1830s when Darwin reads him because of the new poor law. So Britain's had these ancient poor laws, which were a forerunner to welfare payments. And the traditional form of welfare was what was called outdoor relief, which meant that in hard times that your parish would give you a helping hand. It might be a bit of firewood, it might be some work, it might be some food, maybe even a bit of money. Uh, but one way or another, they would help you through the bad times, and then when good times returned, you'd be able to stand on your own two feet. And Malthus, among other things, argues that this simply makes things worse. Because if you give the poor help and allow them to stay in their own homes, they're going to while away the long winter evenings begetting even more children that they can't afford to feed. So the new poor law involves the building of workhouses and the segregation of men and women. So when you go on the parish, you go to, for relief, you're put in a workhouse and the sexes are segregated precisely to ensure that they can't produce any more um, children that they can't feed. And the workhouses are made as unpleasant as possible. Uh, so that people would rather do anything than go there. And the fear of the workhouse haunts Victorian fiction. You find many characters, notably in Dickens, who would literally rather starve to death in the streets than go to a workhouse. So Malthus is in the news when Darwin reads him. 
and very much in the news for people like Darwin with his political background and so on. But what Darwin gets from it is he sees that the, this analogy of the intense competition and the consequences it's going to have, the struggle for existence, he compares in one point to numerous wedges being hammered into a surface. You can't hammer another one in without something popping out. Um, and in that intense competition, any organism that varies, and there's that word again, variation, anything that all varies just slightly so that it has a slight advantage in the competition has a slightly better chance of surviving and therefore of rep reproducing and therefore of passing on that variation to the next generation. And of course, each generation then starts kind of where the previous one finished. Over millions of years, you can accumulate quite enormous amounts of change. There's another question about influences. Um, was he aware of the work of Humboldt? Mm. Absolutely. <clears throat> By a funny coincidence, I was actually talking to my students at Sussex this morning about this because Humboldt is one of the people that inspires Darwin to travel. Before the offer of the journey on the Beagle has even happened, he's already read Humboldt's personal narrative and been absolutely inspired partly by uh, Humboldt's literary style and the vision of the sublime tropical nature, which he describes the great snowy mountains rising above tropical rainforests, the sheer diversity of living things that the tropics hold. And he writes in his own journal um, of the Beagle Voyage that his first glimpse of the tropics, even though Humboldt had prepared him mentally for the extraordinary splendor and the grandeur, uh, he still found his breath taken away, that even Humboldt's words couldn't quite do justice to it. So he was a great inspiration, and Hooker, who I mentioned as well, is also a great fan. Humboldt really inspires a generation of naturalists around the world. Um, and uh, one of the things that they all love about Humboldt is that he is part of this wide project of turning natural history into a much more explanatory science by making links between the different sciences uh, and showing how the data from geography and geology and meteorology and so on can all be woven together into a grand explanatory framework. So that's a prospect that, that greatly appeals to them. The Hooker has a nice story. He goes to Berlin not long after his own big voyage around the Antarctic, and he actually gets to meet Humboldt. Um, and he said, you know, I, I had visions of him uh, like, a, like a colossus, you know, bestriding the, and the Andes, you know, leaping up and down mountains and so on. And there was this punchy little German, <laughs> this old man in his study. He was a bit underwhelmed by him. But Humboldt's in his writing was absolutely crucial to Darwin uh, and to many other naturalists of his generation. And one last one. Did Darwin have anything to say about natural hybridization, common in plants, and its effect on evolution? Um, he did, but I mean, that, that's a story that he was well aware of because, of course, the great figure for Darwin as for most naturalists of the period is Linnaeus, the Swedish naturalist, who, having been originally convinced that God had created all the species, including all the species of plants, exactly as they were, as we now see them, um, he realized that hybridization could actually give rise to new species in nature. And so that was an idea that was already around. And there's a whole tradition of German plant breeding of um, people like Gärtner and Kohlreuter and so on who work with those inspirations and have demonstrated in some detail that hybridization does indeed or can occasionally produce new species. But of course, hybridization between species is not that rare in plants, although it's not that common either. It's almost unheard of in animals. 
So although Darwin knew that work and was very interested by it, he didn't see it as being enough of an explanation because it didn't seem to apply to animal evolution. And he was convinced that there must be a single theory that would explain everything. And the, the model of Newton, the great synthesizer, uh, I think is very important to Darwin in thinking about uh, what a really good scientific theory would have to look like. It would have to explain a great many things with as few and simple terms as possible. So he tends to shy away from, well, we'll have one theory for this group and one theory for that group and another theory for this group. He wants to find one argument, evolution by natural selection. And he, he does say natural selection isn't the only evolutionary mechanism, but he very clearly says he thinks it's the most important one. Um, so it is the master key that holds the whole project together. I think that's all we have time for. I wanted to thank you again, Professor Andersby, for a wonderful lecture and a wonderful start to the series. Um, those of you at home, you may wish to know that the next lecture, Making a Monkey Out of Darwin, will be held on Monday, the 30th of November at 6 p.m. So please do join us for the second lecture in the series. Thank you for listening. Thank you. <laughs>